Good evening, everybody. It's good to see you guys. Some new faces. Yeah. If you want to know where my where I got my red hair from, that's my mama in the back. That's where it came from. Hello. I get my crazy side from my dad. He's right beside her. So, so that's that's that. Uh, so tonight we're gonna go over Isaiah. Before I start out, make sure before you come in here. Uh, in order to have like a, a good dialogue with the speakers, make sure you read the book that we're going to go over next. Next week is Joe. Make sure you read Jeremiah so you can have a, a dialogue with him. You can come with questions, and you can stop in the middle and say, hey, what, what's this chapter about? The book of Isaiah, we're, we're going to cover tonight. Um, August 20th, Back in August 20th, 1977, NASA launched Voyager 2 into outer space. Traveling at speeds of 38,000 miles per hour, and now traveling, have traveled 40 years, it is now 23 billion miles from Earth in interstellar space. To save power and to keep essential instruments working, the engineers turned off the satellite's cameras. Cameras? Turn them off. And I recently watched a video on what if they turned the cameras back on? What would they see? Would they see a whole new set of stars from Voyager 2's cameras now that it's 23 billion miles into outer space? Scientists say that the incredible, most incredible thing is that despite traveling 23 billion miles into the vastness of space, the star constellations that we see on the ground are what the Voyager cameras would see in space. In other words, space is so vast that even after traveling 23 billion miles, it, it appears that, they haven't, that you haven't moved at all. So in other words, like you see, a, you see a cluster of stars and you think, if I went 23 billion miles toward that cluster of stars, surely it would appear to get closer. But the fact is, it doesn't. Even after 40 years in space, and after traveling the distance of 23 billion miles, it looks the same. If you want to see a different perspective in our galaxy, a new array of stars, Voyager 2 would have to travel thousands, thousands of light years just to see a slight shift in the stars you see today. And that would happen millions of years after we're gone. This fact should give us some perspective of how huge space is. Information like this, in comparison, helps us begin to understand the size of space as it relates to us. Another example would be the Grand Canyon. You don't know how big the Grand Canyon is until you look way on the other side and see a little dot that's a little person. There's no way to understand the vastness of something unless you have some reference point to it. It's hard to understand the size of something unless you have something to compare. So tonight, we're going to talk about a man that had an encounter with God that changed his perspective about who he was in relation to God. This encounter with God gave him a reference point that changed his view of himself in light of the vastness, the height, the depth of the glory of God. 
Tonight we're going to cover the book of Isaiah, or more accurately to say, the scrolls of Isaiah. So who is Isaiah? He lived 400, I'm sorry, he lived 740 B.C. He spent most of his time in Jerusalem, in Judah. Remember, at this point in time, the kingdom split between the northern kingdom, which is confusingly called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which is Judah. He's in Judah. He's in the southern kingdom. He's contemporaries with Hosea and Micah. And some, some other facts from the ESV study Bible. The, whole, the phrase, the Holy One of Israel, is Isaiah's main title for God. The phrase occurs 25 times in the book, but rarely elsewhere in the Bible. The word salvation appears 26 times in the scroll of Isaiah, but only seven times in other prophets combined. So what is his background? What, is he, what did he do with his time? He's actually the cousin of King Uzziah. which He's the king that, that recently died and we'll get to in chapter 6. He's grown up in the courts of the kings. This, is, this must be why he had access to the temple in chapter 6 before being commissioned by God to proclaim his message. God spoke at great length to Isaiah and used him in a mighty way to carry his message to the nations and prophesy coming events for future generations to read. Although usually scoffed at, Isaiah, Isaiah diligently warned the, nations of, the nation of Israel against making alliances with other nations. He urged Judah to trust in the Lord. He attacked the cultural sins of their time, knowing that they were a result of a spiritual decline. He had 50 to 60 years of ministry. And Jewish tradition claims that Isaiah was martyred during the reign of Manasseh. He was sawed into inside a hollow log, as a tradition claims, which could be a reference to Hebrews chapter 11. So here's a quick simplified version, simplified version, simplified overview of Isaiah. Chapters 1 through 35 covers the sin and judgment that people will face if they continue to disobey God. It's set in 700 B.C., before Christ, and lays out the judgment that God will render to his people because of their disobedience. The theme of judgment is played out until the historical interlude in chapters 36 through 39. Historical interlude means the historical count of Isaiah and Hezekiah as they're facing the destruction from the Assyrians. The Assyrians have already destroyed the northern kingdom in 722, they look, they're looking, if, you, if they look to the north, they would see smoke. They would smell the whiff of death. And this would be from their cousins in the north, the, the northern kingdom that is now destroyed by the Assyrians. And now the Assyrians are knocking at King Hezekiah's door in Isaiah. The Rabshakeh, the Assyrian, maybe I pronounced that wrong, the Assyrian dignitary and spokesman is terrorizing the people of Judah because he's speaking the Jewish language. He knows enough about the Jewish culture to come back and speak their own language and te is telling the people what he's going to do if Hezekiah does not give up his power, give up his throne. God delivers King Hezekiah from the Assyrians, but Isaiah says that the people's hearts will not hold true 
and there will later be another world power, even more wicked than the Assyrians, that will come, break down the walls, take the people away, and burn the city. Hezekiah will live out his days in peace, but that peace will not last for his descendants. So, his, history pop quiz. Um, who, who takes out the Assyrians? I'm asking you a question. Who, who takes out the Assyrians? Romans? No. Assyrians? Who takes out the Assyrians? You'd make Tim Evans really proud right now if you got this answer. The Babylonians come in and take out the Assyrians. Did somebody say that, Brad? You're about to. On the tip of your tongue. I don't want to get it wrong, Mr. Heath. The Babylonians, as wicked as, and powerful as the Assyrians are, the Babylonians come in and take them out. Before Babylon comes, becomes a superpower, God tells Isaiah to prepare the people in Judah. So in Isaiah chapter, chapters 40 through 55, is preparation for the Babylonian exile and captivity that will happen 200 years in the future at 598 B.C. So Isaiah is preparing this people to face exile that will happen 200 years in, in, the, in the future. In chapters 40 through 55, Isaiah is writing to people that don't exist yet, which I think this is so awesome. When this future generation opens the scroll, it will be like receiving a message from the past. It would be like us opening a time capsule and reading a relevant message for us today. Isaiah is writing to a people who are defeated, again, in the future, in Babylonian captivity, in exile, they're taken from their city, it's destroyed, and they have no identity, they, have, they are in, basically enslaved again, in the reading Isaiah, and Isaiah is speaking to them, and he wrote this 200 years before this happens. Isaiah is writing to people who are defeated, kidnapped, enslaved in Babylon. In this section, God consoles his discouraged people in exile and promised that, quote, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, Isaiah 40, verse 5. God promises that his people would, would turn the promised land, which seems impossible. In order for this to happen, the mighty Babylonian empire would have to fall, which it did. So, next question. I hope you get this right. Otherwise, we're going to have to go back to history class. Who took out the Babylonians? The Syrians got destroyed by the Babylonians, and then the Babylonians got destroyed by the... Who just keeps saying Romans? <laughs> You're wrong. Not yet. Yes. What she said. Miss Bethy got it right. The Persians take out the Babylonians. Another feature in this book in Isaiah is the clear predictive prophecies. Isaiah tells the people. The Babylonians are coming to take you off into exile. Prepare yourself, and then that happens. And then he says, there'll be a king named Cyrus. He's a Persian, and his Persian empire will take out the Babylonians. And it'll bring you back into the land. And they're probably thinking, what's a Persian? Who is Cyrus? It's insane. 
King Cyrus of Persia would one day make it possible for the Jews to return home from exile in Babylon. If you have, uh, turn to page, turn chapter 44, and we'll, we'll, read, we'll read some sections here. Isaiah 44, verse 28. Isaiah 44. And this is what he says about Cyrus. Again, Isaiah is writing this 200 years before Cyrus comes on the scene, before he's even born, okay? Which is amazing. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill my purposes. And go to the next uh, chapter, uh, chapter 45, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue the nations before him, to loose the belts of the kings, to open doors before him, that the gates may not be closed. Isaiah predicted this event, even mentioning Cyrus by name. And this is 150 years before Cyrus' time. It would be like Abraham Lincoln writing in 1860 to his contemporaries about a band named Johnny Sanders and his love for wrestling in great detail. The book of Isaiah ends with, this is Isaiah chapter 56 through 66. Isaiah prophesies about future events that will set expectations until the end of the world. His target audience is not just those in exile, but those who would come to know the God of Israel in future generations. God prepares all of his true people for his promised salvation. He reveals God's future involvement with the Gentiles, Gentile nations, and with Israel. The call in this section is for God's people to cling to his promises Keep justice and do righteousness. Isaiah 56, verse 1. Isaiah's writings were incredibly helpful to people like Ezra and Nehemiah as they were in exile and instruction on what to do when they returned to the promised land. Isaiah's scrolls were like a spiritual guidestone to rebuild the Jewish civilization. What Isaiah wrote through tears in the 720 B.C. is read with great joy in the 530 B.C. Ezra and Nehemiah are reading the 200-year-old Isaiah time capsule, which is why Isaiah says in Isaiah 8, verse 16, he says, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. Seal it up. It's, it's not, it's going to, it's applicable for you, but it my target audience is for a future generation. Seal it up. These disciples handed and copied the scrolls of Isaiah throughout the years. And when they returned to the land, they were reminded of this great hope they have in the Lord and are challenged to break the cycle of sin of their forefathers. The word of the Lord is preserved and passed down through this time from one generation to the next. And this has application for us today. For us, for you and me. 2 Timothy 1.14 says, Guard the good deposit. He has given us a deposit of good truth that is, will save your soul. And it's entrusted to us, all of us in this room. And what you're doing tonight is what God's people have done throughout the centuries, preserving and furthering God's promises from one generation to, the, to another, rightly dividing God's word. This is why 
what we're doing right now matters. It's the most important thing you can be doing with your time. I don't know if you, if you have a brain like I do, I'm constantly thinking, I want to check that out on my phone. Why didn't Alabama make the playoff? Or how is that team going to compare to this team? And just meaningless nonsense like that. What you're doing right now is the most important thing. And I'm, I'm so thankful to the Lord that, that y'all are here studying. We're all studying together. What was the motivation for Isaiah? What got him out of bed in the morning? What, what got him going? Let's, let's talk about that for a second. But first, what's, I never watched the show. Uh, maybe I saw clips of it, but I know the concept of it. What, Dirty Jobs of Mike Rowe. Do you all ever see that show? What's the, what's the idea, behind, what's the premise behind Dirty Jobs? Dirty jobs, kind of self-explanatory. Doing dirty work, like having to go to the sewer and fix a pipe. Yeah, some of y'all do that. And at some point, like the, the clips I've watched, I always get this place of, you'd have to pay me a lot of money to do that. You'd have to pay me a lot of money to go and do uh, that kind of work. What... Doing a difficult job is tough, but what would make it even worse? What would make this job, a dirty job, worse? What? Not being paid? Yeah, that would, that would stink. What else? It's dirtier. Dirtier? It gets worse? Your life is in danger. Your life is in danger? Yeah. All these are bad, yeah. How about you did the, you did the hard, dirty job, and, and the person you did it for was like, I don't care what you did. It doesn't acknowledge what you've done or say thank you. It would add insult to injury. It was hard work. You did it, and then the person is ungrateful for what you've done. And this is, this is what Isaiah went through, because we're going to learn about what God called him to. He had not a, really a dirty, I guess it was a dirty job, but a, a very difficult job, and it was, it was very thankless. So what motivated him to, to push on and keep going? You turn to Isaiah chapter 6, and we're going to camp out here for a sec. Isaiah chapter 6. What would make a difficult job worse is people being ungrateful or even rejecting the good work you've done. Which This is what happens to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, here, here I am send me. And he said, Go and say this people, Keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. So Isaiah says, I'm going to go. Send me. And God says, here's your task. They're not going to listen to you. And then Isaiah says, how long is this going to last? And, and God says, then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant, and the houses without people, and the land is, desolate, is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, 
and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. So Isaiah is called to preach to people who are dull of hearing and have no heart to receive God's warning. God is very patient. All throughout Scripture, you cannot, you cannot judge God on a lack of patience. He's shown extraordinary patience to people, calling them to repent, giving them demonstrations. It's like, so for Isaiah, it's like watching a car wreck in slow motion. And every day, Isaiah is saying, turn the wheel, hit the brakes, repent and turn to God. Every day he wakes up and he plants a seed that he will not see fruit in his lifetime. That's a tough job, right? That's a really tough job. What can motivate somebody to do such a heartbreaking task? What, what motivates you? What, what keeps you on the path? This, seeing his motivation is going to help us understand how you can have the motivation like Isaiah. What impacted him to give him the motivation he needed to carry on this difficult thing? To see that, let's, let's flash back to the, the first of this chapter in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. Very famous passage, especially at this church, because Pastor Tim loves this passage, and I do too. In the, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on, upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs, seraphim flew to me, having his hand, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. At this moment, Isaiah sees that he's not a fine, upstanding citizen that he thought he was. He's the cousin of King Uzziah that just passed away. He has access to temple courts. At that moment, Isaiah got a reference point. He began to see his true size in relation to the vastness of space. In his relation to the one that created space. To the one that is outside of space. Outside of creation. Isaiah saw the holy, holy, holy one. And instantly he saw the nature of who he was before God. And what does he say? I'm a man of unclean lips. He saw that he was unholy. We see the reference point when Isaiah, this, this idea that he is unholy before the Lord, we, we see this echoed 
throughout his, his writings like when he says, our righteousness is like filthy rags. I think you realize that truth here in Isaiah. The best that I have to offer my oratory skills of communication is filthy rags. I'm a man of unclean lips. Compared to you, I am unholy. In other words, the best deeds fall short of the glory of God. It doesn't register as worth commending. Isaiah came upon the only one who's not just the best, but holy. Holy meaning God is in a category all to himself. There's no comparison to him in a one-to-one sense with any person, place, or thing in all of creation. God is qualitatively and quantitatively better than anything in this world that exists or that which you can conceive in your mind. God is perfect in wonder and beauty, complete in essence, the source of all goodness, the Father of lights, the Holy God above all things. Isaiah sees God on his throne and he starts coming apart at the seams. Isaiah cries out, Woe to me! Woe to me! I am lost! And what does God do to Isaiah? He tells the seraph to get a coal off the altar and put it on Isaiah's mouth to purify him. God takes the, the device of cleansing and he puts it to the place of sin. God takes the device of cleansing, the coal, and puts it to the place of sin, Isaiah's mouth. So I think a point of application for us is when you sin, don't just offer God up some generic, sorry for my sin, Lord. Be specific about it. Isaiah says, I am a man of unclean lips. That was his sin. And he was very specific about it to the Lord. And I think that has application for us as when we apologize to each other. Don't just say, hey, I'm sorry for, sorry for that. Say, I'm sorry, and say it in a specific way. Doesn't that feel better when, when you know somebody, when somebody's wronged you and they apologize and they spit out what they've done to you? That, more than likely, you're going you're gonna to understand that they are sorry for their sin. This speci- be very specific in your repentance and in your apology toward one another. And what does God do? He puts a coal on his lips. Verse 6, Then one of the seraphs flew to me, having having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and touched my mouth. And he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for Instead of being destroyed, God shows grace to Isaiah and atones for his sins. But 700 years later, this same king that Isaiah saw would come down off his throne in inner creation. When it says Isaiah saw the Lord, what does it mean? The New Testament fills this in. In John 12, verse 41, it says... Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory 
and spoke about him. Isn't that awesome? We get more New Testament detail of this Isaiah 6 account in John chapter 12. Isaiah said these things because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. Who did Isaiah see on the throne high and lifted up? He saw Jesus, the image of God made visible. First Colossians 1.15, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything that was created and is supreme over all creation. On the cross, God took the device of cleansing Jesus, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, and puts it at the place of sin, the cross, so that we can have our sins atoned for. What God did for Isaiah, he did for us on the cross to atone for our sins. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 This is the key to Isaiah's life. This is, this is the place where Isaiah would return in his mind, in his heart, to get that motivation to run the race, to keep doing the difficult things, to do the, the dirty jobs, to do the ungrateful work. The big vision of King Jesus is what powers and sustains Isaiah to do the hard things in his life. Isaiah is like, the, uh, he's like the, the Paul of the Old Testament. He lays out amazing truths, but like with what, Paul, what Peter says about Paul, some, there's some things that are hard to understand. For the longest time, people didn't understand the relationship between the Messiah and the suffering servant in Isaiah's writings. You see these two things come up. The Messiah is coming, and you have this suffering servant, and it, people didn't understand how they connected. The Messiah, we get this from Isaiah uh, 9.6. It says, For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. There it is. Isaiah's talking about a Messiah who's a mighty warrior who's going to crush the Romans and crush the Syrians and Babylonians and Persians and anybody else, any other world power. This is going to be awesome. I can't wait for this guy to show up. And then Isaiah says, and there's a servant coming. Isaiah 53, verse 5, that says, but he was pierced for our iniquity, pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. So how does this mighty warrior, how is this mighty warrior going to be crushed? Of course, we know the gospel of Jesus solves this mystery. Like the bronze serpent, Jesus is high and lifted up. He reigns on the cross showing us the glory of his grace, healing his people, atoning for their sins. The mystery of Isaiah is resolved at the cross. The high king that, that Isaiah saw came down to become the burning coal to atone for the sins of his people. Isaiah could not get over what he saw and the grace that he experienced from God to atone for his sins. 
And this motivated him to do the hard things. It motivated him to, to seek to live a holy life and not to, be, not to adopt the sins of the culture. It is so easy for us to just transform, take on the personality, whatever, you, what, whatever your culture you're in, and just morph into whatever you surround yourself with. You've got to have a strong force in your heart to say, no, I'm not following, I'm not doing that. I'm not, not going to go along with what the group says we're going to do. It's motivated him to do the hard things for God. Motivated him to seek to live a holy life. And this is what we're trying to do in this Wednesday series. This Wednesday night series. We want to give you a big picture of who Jesus is from the Scriptures to motivate you to live for him. We can't just come up here and say, try better, do harder, whatever. We want you to be motivated by God's love for you in Jesus. When you have a big view of who God is that Isaiah had, you say, here I am, send me. And if it looks impossible, you're like Isaiah, you're like, I will do it. How can I not do this? You've given yourself for me. How can I not live for you? That's, what we're, that's our goal here when we meet up Wednesday, Wednesday and, of course, Sunday morning as well. So that when you see your state before God, you'll appreciate what he's given us. When you see that he is high and lifted up, when he is unapproachably holy, and his holiness is so beyond anything that you can comprehend and he's he's and you see when you see his holiness you see your state before him and you realize that you are a a man of unclean lips a woman of unclean lips you see your need for jesus and when things get really difficult and you can't see out of your way out of your own emotions you can turn to jesus to override your emotions or when life circumstances become you feel like it's too much you look to that place where God is, but God saved me. I will be happy forever no matter what because Jesus has given his life for me. Do you know Jesus as your king? Everybody, listen to me right now. Focus. Do you know Jesus as your king? Are you following him? Do you know this Jesus that we've been talking about? And have you given your life to following him? Or... Are you secretly the Lord of your life? Or something else is oper- uh, your main operating system for your life? What we see in Isaiah is a good response of how you should respond to the Lord. I will follow you. You give me, you are my king. I will follow you no matter what. If you know Jesus as your king, you will inevitably have an attitude like Isaiah that says, Here I am, send me. Here I am, you are my king, you give me the marching orders. If you don't know Jesus, turn from your sins and ask this gracious king that has, came, that has come down into his creation to give his life for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the message of Isaiah, the ultimate message that points us to, to you, Jesus in your love for us. And when you started your ministry, 
you quoted Isaiah chapter 61 to let everybody know who you are and what you would come to do, what you came to do. Lord, you are gracious to us. If we saw what Isaiah saw right now and that became real in our hearts, we would cry out like Isaiah, woe to me. Cursed am I because I am not holy as you are holy. Help us to feel that in our hearts and help us to see you, Jesus, for what you've done on the cross for us, to remove our sin debt. I pray that that reality would set down deep in our hearts and that we would be motivated to turn from our sin and follow you. If somebody here doesn't know you, if they're just a cultural coming in, doing the weekend warrior Christian thing, I pray that you would convict their hearts. I pray that they would follow you as their king and that you would be on, on their hearts, ruling. Give them joy in you. And motivate us to, to live for you because we will be happy with you at your right hands or pleasure forevermore. We thank you for all that you've done for us. You are a great king. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.